it is a rare Coen Brothers film that it not at some point invokes God because they know. Because they know. You can't talk about anything important. You can't tell any good story unless you reach for the foundations of reality. And in a moment like that from a brother where art thou? Yeah, let's talk about baptism. Let's talk about what it means to be clean. Let's talk about what it means to feel free. For most of 2023, we have devoted ourselves to focusing on the one person of the Trinity who doesn't like to have much attention brought upon him, and that is the Holy Spirit of God. He loves to bring attention to the Father and the Son, not as much to himself. We've decided it was time for the Holy Spirit to kind of, you know, here we are. As we begin to move in the direction of trying to conclude our focus on the Holy Spirit in 2024, we have brought our attention to the Spirit and the soul's renewal two weeks ago with Andrew. Last week, we spoke about the soul and the, the Spirit and the sermon. Today and next week, we want to ask the question, what is the Spirit up to in the sacraments? Of which there are two, according to Scripture. Baptism and the Lord's Supper. You get both in the same day. If you want to think about the Holy Spirit's job in general, what Jesus accomplished in history, the Spirit applies to your heart. The facts on the ground and the moment that he accomplished that is now meant to inspire faith, impress upon it, to do something in us. The best metaphor I've heard of is about a salve being rubbed into the skin. That's what the Holy Spirit is out to do. Well, we want to ask the question in the spirit of what you just saw portrayed there in a Coen Brothers film, what is the Spirit up to in the sacrament of baptism? What's going on there? Now, look, um, if you came to this sermon having taken up my advice last week to read the text in advance, if you think I'm going to talk about whether children should be baptized or what mode of baptism you should apply to, you've got the wrong sermon. I've done that elsewhere. I'll do it again another time. That's not this sermon. We want to talk about what is the Spirit up to in baptism. And we want to speak specifically to that question. And I think as we listen to a brief passage from the Apostle Peter, what the Spirit is out to apply to our heart, when it comes to baptism, three things come to mind. The significance of Jesus' death, the scope of Jesus' triumph, and the meaning of our identification with Jesus in baptism. The significance of his death, the scope of his triumph, and the meaning of our identification with him, and I picked that word for a reason that you'll understand later, with him in baptism. That's where we're going to go. We're in 1 Peter. We're in chapter 3. We're going to pick it up in the middle of his thought. I promise I'll give you the context. If you'll stand, we'll start in verse 18. First Peter 3, starting in verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. 
not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Before we get into the specifics about the sacrament of baptism, let's back up a little bit and let's address some preliminaries when thinking about sacraments in general. And let's first do our job by telling us what sacraments are not before we talk about what the sacraments are. The sacraments are not, first of all, magic. When Hermione starts showing, casting spells, if you were born with wizard blood and you say the right words as an incantation and you are mature enough to give the necessary focus, then you harness the powers that are in that fantasy and you work your will. That's magic. You're in charge. That is not a sacrament. A sacrament bends to the will of no one but God's power and prerogative. It is not the words that are said. It is not the one who is saying it that has any effect on whether there is power affected by the sacrament. The sacraments are known as two things. They're a sign of something, that as they point to something, they have meaning, they have significance, but they also seal something. They confirm to your conscience, to your inner being, something that is true. It is more than just a symbol it is something that is out to do work on you, in your being. That's what the sacrament does. So it's not magic. It's also not just an act or a ritual that invokes a memory that has a certain kind of power to it that memories do. So when you see White Christmas, and in the last scene where the ballerina comes out and the snow falls there in that little New England bed and breakfast, what do we all feel? All sorts of things. Thoughts, feelings, Oh my gosh, that's a lot of red material. <laughs> and and you, you feel something and, and, and you, want to, you want to have another glass of eggnog or whatever it may be. It inspires thoughts. The music is there and the, and the music has content and it has a certain kind of power to you. But there's no power in the music with all due respect to Irving Berlin. It, it has an effect and it, it provokes this kind of response in you and its memory, but there's nothing in the song. It's just a song. And it has that effect. The sacraments are more than just out to help you recall a memory that we'll get to. What's the specific memory that's out to be provoked or evoked? That's there. There's a memory involved. But it's not all on you in order for it to have the power or the intention that it does. We are arguing that the sacraments act upon you by the Spirit. Baptism and the Lord's Supper, the Spirit is at work in that moment. It is mysterious. It is inscrutable. Do I understand it fully? I don't even understand it barely. But I'm here to tell you that it is not magic. And it is not simply about you recalling and having this some sort of effect on you such that the burden is all on you to kind of get it and I've got to think about it so profoundly that I finally am affected by it. No. The sacraments are not that. They're not magic and they're not just an act that provokes a memory. All right, great. If that's not what they're not, then what are they? They are, first of all, this. It is what the Spirit is out about to apply to your heart. In 1 Peter, he kind of bookends his whole conversation about his whole letter 
was speaking of the Spirit as the one who is sent from God, that the prophets speak of, to speak of things about the gospel in which the angels have longed to look. Even angels were not aware. The Spirit is sent to disclose that to us. And then at the end, in chapter 4, near, near the end of First Peter, he speaks of the Spirit of glory that is out to rest upon you. He doesn't sort of live out there in the ether. And kind of what Jesus said at the beginning of our service today with Glenn's prelude, Jesus is in us, in us by the Spirit. That's what the Spirit is. What is the Spirit out to apply to our hearts that Jesus worked in history? First of all, the significance of Jesus' death. The whole book of 1 Peter is addressed to a people that, how shall I put it, are getting it handed to them. They are believing and they are feeling the reproach. They are being ostracized. They are losing social capital or worse, they are suffering. They are suffering because they are believing and they are beginning to wonder, is it worth believing? And Peter is saying yes, so how do you face that when you feel like, I'm not sure this is worth it anymore? The first thing you focus on with the help of the Spirit is the significance of the death of Jesus. And he tells us four things about it. And in our translation in the ESV, it's a little different. In other translations, maybe you have the Net Bible or the NIV, and you'll notice that verse 18 is actually set apart. It's indented. You go out in the gallery, and there are paintings. And some of those paintings are just like the landscapes. You walk outside, and it's like, oh, I've seen that before. But there's a frame on it. And that frame is there to say, look here, focus. This is beautiful, and I want you to direct your attention to that. In other translations, verse 18 is set apart. It's indented because when you bring content and beauty together, you want to sort of set it apart. And Peter does that in verse 18. And he's going to tell us four things that the Spirit is out to apply to us about the significance of his death. Listen to verse 18 again. Because Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust to bring you to God, by being put to death in the flesh, but by being made alive in the spirit. That's a mouthful. Four things about the significance of his death. First of all, that it was innocent. He was just. He was righteous. He was without blemish. He was without blame. What he deserved was for people to bow down and worship him. What he deserved was respect. What he deserved was dignity. What he deserved was glory. And he got none of that. Suffering, in the words of one philosopher-theologian by the name of Eleanor Stump, what is suffering? Suffering is your desires denied. Your dreams diminished, if not eradicated. That's suffering. What Jesus deserved, he did not get. And instead he suffered that's his desire and his dream denied, even though it was part of his plan. He was innocent. And because he was innocent, it was not simply that he was in the wrong place at the wrong time. It was not simply that he was the victim of a series of unfortunate events. It was not simply a random occurrence in which people like him who got out of line got put back in line. His death was atoning. The just for the unjust. He suffered once for sins. It was not merely unfortunate. It was purposeful. Like we said on Christmas Eve, he was born, but he was born in order to die. That's his goal. 
That's why he came. He came to cover. He came to cleanse. He came to change. He came to atone. What does Macbeth say? Out, damn spot. I can't wash my hands enough. I know what I've done. I can't rid myself of it. I can't rid myself of the memory of it, of the guilt of it, of what might come upon me. And how does Macbeth end? With him getting his just dessert, so to speak. Not to ruin it for you. (laughs) The scene at the cross ends with Jesus dying, but not for his sin, but for ours. His death is atoning. It cleanses, it covers, it forgives. The done preacher says, I done had all my sins forgiven. Look, you can put it in whatever clear, convincing, and uh, lacking erudition in all sorts of ways. It's the same truth. Forgiven. It's more than just getting a clean slate, though. It's more than just having your box checked going, don't have to worry about that anymore. It is an innocent death. It is an atoning death, but it is an atoning death that it might also be a reconciling death. And that's why Peter says, this death was to bring us to God, to bring us to his welcome, to bring us to his face, that his face might shine upon us, that we might not look on him with fear, but that we might look on him with hope. Now, let let me clarify my statement there. The place for holy fear is appropriate. All of you have friends. Some of you have spouses. Some of you still have parents. And I would dare say that part of your desire to do as they ask of you is out of a holy fear of offending them, of violating the trust that you have with them. You have a certain, that makes you shudder a little bit. And if it doesn't, that's the problem. There is a place for holy fear in any relationship. Well, how much more then with God? You, you, you go up to a fireplace, you stick your hand in the fire, it will burn you. You pull it back a little bit and there's warmth and there's rest and there's serenity in that. There is a place for holy fear of offending him. But what we really all long for in the course of that, in the context of that, is also to know his welcome, to know his warmth. That's what his death is about. Not simply that you might walk around living under the the stern face of God where you think he merely tolerates you begrudgingly. Oh, I guess I have to like you. He's there to reconcile us to himself. That's the nature of his death. So far, we've talked about him having an innocent death, which is of him, and both an atoning and a reconciling death, which is a death that was by him for our sake. The fourth part is something that happened to him. Here's the weirdest part. But being put to death in the flesh, but being made alive in the spirit. He died bodily, as you will die bodily. But he was raised into something different. He died as we will, ashes to ashes, dust to dust. Leave his bones in the ground long enough, they would be decay, but they were not. But following his death and his resurrection, he came back in a form that was not the same as when he died. And he came back in a form, in a form that you and I will be. He came as we are, entered into our limitation, subjected himself to death, but then raised again unto glory, such that now he is as we in him will be, made alive in the spirit. He became as we are, 
so that one day we will be as he is now. That's the transformative death. That's the significance of his death. It was transformative to him and therefore anticipatory of yours. That's what the Spirit is trying to drive home. To apply to us in our baptism the significance of that death. <clears throat> what effect is that supposed to have though? I can tell you about any number of other characteristics about God, uh, Jesus. You know, what, what if he was 6'1", 195, could bench 280? Who knows? Why if those facts about his profile, who knows, right? Um, watch this, right? Can you imagine that? Uh, <clears throat> why do these facts about his death, what effect are they supposed to have rather than me just telling you other factors about him that are not included in his profile, his avatar? Early in the book of 1 Peter, in chapter 1, verse 8, Peter says this to those who are listening. Though you've not seen him, you love him. That's the effect that the Spirit is out to create in us. The difference between a New Testament theologian who does not come and worship is that they know a number of facts about him, but he is not endeared to them. There may be a certain kind of respect for him, maybe even a little bit of a pity for him. He just shouldn't have spoken up. He was at the wrong place at the wrong time, and he died a martyr's death, and it was just an unfortunate turn of events. There are facts about him, but facts that are meant by the Spirit's help and upon which we depend on the Spirit for it to ever make sense and for, for it to matter at all. Look, if he just died, it's not worth talking about. If it, to borrow Lewis, C.S. Lewis, if it's true, then it's very important. And if it's not true, it's not important at all. But there is no such thing in looking at the life of Jesus and thinking of it as moderately important. It becomes important when all of those things about his death endear him to you such that you long to please him because you believe his love for you is actually true and at work in you by the Spirit. That's what Spirit's doing in baptism. What else is the Spirit doing in baptism? Here's the part where you gotta go, okay, let's, what are we talking about here? I wanna talk about the significance of his death, but now, if you read this in advance, I'm getting to the part where you're going, how's he gonna handle this part? In verses 18 through 20, Peter is going to start talking about something that I would like to argue is the Spirit trying to apply to our hearts this thing, the scope of Jesus' triumph. And he is going to refer to something that will leave you head-scratching. In fact, Martin Luther, when he read this, says, I have no idea what Peter means. In fact, some will argue that this verse is the most, the most head-scratching, not understood passage in the entire New Testament. And I'm going to explain it perfectly to you. No, I won't. Listen. It reaches back to what we just heard in verse 18 about Jesus' death, but being made alive in the Spirit. Born bodily, dies bodily, made alive in the Spirit. What does that indicate? It has nothing to do with the Holy Spirit. He's talking about a new kind of form in which he is, in which therefore he is not bound by human limitations. Uh, remember in, in later, later in Luke's gospel, uh, Jesus is risen. And they're all kind of huddled up in the house. And all of a sudden, Jesus kind of appears, like he comes through the wall. Like, what's up with that? And yet he also says, y'all got anything to eat? Um, 
what he's kind of like human and yet um, he's like us but not like us. What is that new form that now is not bound by the human limitations that you and I are bound by? What does that enable him to do? Well, here it comes. In it, he went and preached to the spirits in prison after they were disobedient long ago when God patiently waited in the days of Noah as an ark was being constructed. In the ark, a few, that is eight souls, were delivered through water. Are you ready? Preaching to the spirits in prison. What's up with that? In Genesis chapter 6, you may remember when uh, Genesis 6 refers to when the sons of God fell in love with the daughters of men. When men began to multiply in the face of the land and daughters were born to the sons of God, which is a shorthand for talking about who? Angelic figures. Not any reason you should know that from the reading. You look at in other places in the book of Job and in the Psalms. The sons of God refer to God's angelic figures. When the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were attractive and they took as their wives any they chose, then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days. You want to go look in the resource doc this week? There's some stuff in there about the Nephilim. What were they? They were kind of like giants in the land, and they appear to be the offspring of angels mating with human women. I told you it was hard. <laughs> and so here's a Hieronymus Bosch painting that talks about what's going on. In that moment, these angels were disobedient to the Lord's will, didn't care, and they become fallen angels. And they are consigned to a place of imprisonment, whatever that might have been. Peter is borrowing from a literary and theological tradition that he does not cite, and that's why we're all scratching our head. But in that moment, something's up. Those forces from which the Nephilim come, they are at the headwaters, literally, of the disobedience of humanity that leads to the flood. Judgment is being pronounced. Judgment is being warned against. Noah listens, the others don't. They're in the ark, and they are saved through water. But apparently these fallen angels, who were, again, responsible for their own sin, but also responsible for helping to influence the disobedience of other humans on the planet, they get consigned. What is our passage saying? Jesus went and pronounced judgment upon them a final and full judgment upon them. What is the scope of Jesus' triumph? He pronounces judgment upon wickedness and upon all of those who are at the headwaters of that wickedness and wickedness itself. That is the scope of Jesus' judgment. And what he does there to the spirits who are in prison, he will do fully and finally forever at some point in history. Huh. Where are you with that? Some of you hear that, and if you're a visitor to us today, and if you've come here out of respect for Jesus, but you can't say that Jesus is Lord, at this point you'll go, this is where I get off the bus. And maybe there's a part of us that all goes, I'm glad that that's the only time but for Numbers 13 that we ever hear about the Nephilim. And I get it. And I feel it. And I feel you. The idea of judgment. I love the idea of God being powerful and merciful and forgiving and loving. I'm all in with that. But the part about judgment upon wickedness and sin, sorry, that's not my cup of tea. I'm out. I'm off the bus. Fine. 
You can go there, and I know why you would. However, I do wonder, have you ever really been around the presence of wickedness? I think a lot of you maybe have. Have you ever been in the presence of malice and cruelty and inhumanity? If you haven't, it is my argument that your problem with judgment is more a matter of preference than it is principled. I want to show you a scene from True Detective. Matthew McConaughey, Woody Harrelson, they're two detectives. They're out trying to find the cause of a bunch of killings, and their search has led them to an intent revival. And they think that maybe the preacher might be involved. You're not going to hear from the preacher much, but you're going to hear from them. And it's sort of a point, counterpoint, about religion in general. I promise I'll explain why I'm talking about it. Check this out. What do you think the average IQ of this group is, huh? Can you see Texas up there on your high horse? What do you know about these people? Just observation and deduction. See a propensity for obesity, poverty, a yen for fairy tales. Folks putting what few bucks they do have in the little wicker baskets being passed around. I think it's safe to say that nobody here is going to be splitting the atom, Marty. Some folks enjoy community, the common good. Yeah, well, if the common good's got to make up fairy tales, then it's not good for anybody. What's it say about life? Hmm? You got to get together. Tell yourself stories that violate every law of the universe. What's that say about your reality, Marty? When you get to talking like this, you sound panicked. Transference of fear and self-loathing to an authoritarian vessel. It's catharsis. He absorbs their dread with his narrative. Because of this, he's effective in proportion to the amount of certainty he can project. Certain linguistic anthropologists think that religion is a language virus that rewrites pathways in the brain, dulls critical thinking. Well, I don't use $10 words as much as you, but for a guy who sees no point in existence, you sure fret about it an awful lot. And you still sound panicked. He looks down on those that reach for narratives that help to make sense of things. He considers it entirely a mythology and sort of an ancient way of thinking about that, a story that's not really grounded in truth but helps explain things. And his friend there is to say, you seem a little perturbed about the way things are. You're a detective. You're out to find the end of justice. Where does that come from if existence doesn't really matter? We sit with life we sit with wickedness and evil and we don't know what to do with it. And there are parts of us that read Genesis 6 and here's Peter referring to it and we go, man, that's just nuts. I can't go there. I'm off the bus. And I'm here to argue that you, good luck. Because at some point, when you realize and reckon a blood-soaked world that you live in, are you sure you want to discard the possibility of God eradicating that from the face of the earth? Miroslav Volf, he was a survivor of the Serbo-Croatian War. He is an author. And what he said 20 years ago or 30 years ago, I think would equally apply to what's going on in Ukraine and Russia right now. But he would confront 
a Western liberal mind that you and I have imbibed upon in ways that we have no category for, no measurement of. And he says this, my thesis that the practice of nonviolence requires a belief in divine vengeance will be unpopular with many Christians. To the person who's inclined to dismiss it, I suggest imagining that you're delivering a lecture in a war zone. Among your listeners are people whose cities and villages have been first plundered, then burned and leveled to the ground. The topic of the lecture is a Christian attitude toward violence. And the thesis, we should not retaliate since God is perfect, non-coercive love. Soon you would discover that it takes the quiet of a suburban home for the birth of the thesis that human nonviolence corresponds to God's refusal to judge. In a scorched land, soaked in the blood of the innocent, it will invariably die. And as one watches it die, one will do well to reflect about many other pleasant captivities of the liberal mind. Here's the punchline. If God were not angry at injustice and deception and did not make a final end of violence, that God would not be worthy of our worship. That is the scope of Jesus' triumph that is spoken of when he's preaching to the spirits in the prison as an anticipation of another day when there will be an end. And yes, the spirit is out to apply that truth to our hearts when we think about our baptism. Which therefore gets us then to this last idea. If he's out to speak to the significance of his death and the scope of his triumph, can we please talk about what baptism is? Can we talk about the meaning of this identification? The, he reaches back to Noah and he says, what we have in the story of Noah is sort of an anticipation of what we have in baptism. What happened there? God judged. He was sorrowful the way it's sin had pervaded things so quickly. It says, build an ark. They get on. Those who listen, they survive. And it says they were, they, they, they were rescued through water. And that what happened with Noah is out to help us understand what's going on in baptism. What is the Spirit out to persuade us of and work to our hearts in baptism? What happened in that moment is anticipation of what Jesus will say in Luke chapter 12. He will speak of his own passion. He will speak of his own crucifixion. And how will he refer to it? In shorthand, he will refer to it as his baptism. His own watery ordeal, just as it was as the ark on the water in the flood. And so he says in Luke 12, I came to cast fire on the earth and would that it were already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. His cross was his baptism. His cross was him bringing and satisfying judgment as the water was in that day. And in that moment, Jesus is doing what? He's suffering for sin, but he's doing something even more profound and more fundamental. He's identifying with us. He's identifying with our humanity. That's why he became like one of us. And he's identifying with our sin such that he takes it upon himself and satisfies the justice of God by dying for it. That's identification. I am with you. I am stuck on you. I am united to you. Friends, that's what baptism is. It is about water. It is about cleansing. But it is more fundamentally about identifying with him in his fullness, to believe that he has a claim on me. 
So when Peter makes this contrast, baptism is not simply the removal of dirt from the body. He wants to make everybody very clear Jesus is not merely interested in wiping your theological slate clear, though he is that, and though he did accomplish that. He is not only interested in forgiving you, he is interested in going to the heart of you that required forgiveness in the first place. He is out to go to the deepest, darkest crevices of every heart, desire that you have to say, you're mine. This will not stand. It will not stay. It is not merely a superficial cleaning. When he says baptism is our appeal to God for a good conscience, it is what he wants for us. He wants us to walk in fellowship with him where we are not afraid of him. He wants us to walk in such a way that his life becomes our life. And we long for that. We don't just do it because we, he says we have to. We don't just obey our parents because they say do this. It's because we want to, because we believe life is there. That's what baptism is. It is not a get out of jail free card alone. It goes deeper. And where in the world would we have any hope that that could ever be true for us? Because he was risen. If he wasn't risen, I have nothing to help you with. His ethical model is not enough to make in you what he asks of you. Try as you might, you will fail him. I have failed him. I will fail him. But because he's risen and because he's ascended and because he lives to intercede for those whose faith is in him, he means to make you new. And because he's alive and he prays, this is what he's out to render to you in baptism. That you might understand you are not simply forgiven and now you're off the hook. He means to make you new. What's the application? You have one of two choices. If you have never done it before, this text, by the words of my mouth and in the power of the Spirit, I am inviting you to repent and be baptized. Repent does not mean go clean yourself up, do better, get it together. Repentance is turning toward him because you believe you can't. Repentance is acknowledging I cannot make myself acceptable and I cannot fix what I regret. It stares me in the face. I carry it like a, like a weight of suit of armor that I cannot be cut free from. That's repentance. You are called to repent and to receive his grace, to receive his mercy, to receive his forgiveness, to receive his face of welcome. And both out of obedience to what he's declared you and to mark the moment to be baptized, to identify with him in death and identify with him in resurrection. If you never have before, repent and be baptized. Baptize your children too. Sorry, I wasn't going to say that. If you already have been baptized, then this is your application. And it's a wonderful phrase that we've inherited from the Reformation, and they would say it over and over again. Whenever you're in the presence of a baptism, or whenever you need to, remember your baptism. And as needed, repent. Remember whose you are, 
the significance of his death, the scope of his triumph, the nature of your identification with him, which is what baptism is. Remember that. You fight with your baptism. If you were baptized as a child, you don't remember it. It's not about remembering the moment in which it happened. You're remembering his grace in what it signifies and what it seals. And that becomes for you a weapon. And so Calvin will say it. We must realize that at whatever time we are baptized, we are once and for all washed and purged for our whole life. Therefore, as often as we fall away, we ought to recall the memory of our baptism and fortify our mind with it, that we may always be sure and confident of the forgiveness of sins. You fight with that. You may hate yourself this week, but you can't. Because he loves you. He wants you to hate your sin, but not yourself. And that's why Luther will say, in tandem with John, for this reason we must hold boldly and fearlessly to our baptism and hold it up against all sins and terrors of conscience and humbly say, I know full well that I have not a single work which is pure, but I am baptized. And through my baptism, God who cannot lie has bound himself in a covenant with me not to count my sin against me, but to slay it and blot it out. That is your freedom, and that is also your invitation to repentance and to make amends with those to whom you must in the freedom of knowing that you are his and he will not forsake you. That's the application. To repent and be baptized if you never have or to remember your baptism and repent as necessary if you have. And that's why we come to the table. To remember your baptism to remember the baptism that he was about to be baptized in, a passion, a crucifixion, and a death. Let's pray. May it be to us as you have said, as Mary said it, in Jesus' name, amen.